Black Cats Run podcast, episode 3B, Learn to Fly. Before we get started, I want to invite people, remind people, open invitation. Uh, If you're on Instagram, love to have you follow, uh, join the space we created on there, at Black Cats Run. Um, a couple people have done that already, which is awesome. And I hope as we go and we can use that as a space to develop dialogue about what we're talking about here, people can share what they would like to hear, questions they want to see explored more, perspectives that they want to see represented, ideas or insights that they're developing um, in response to this. And right, we hope that this is thought-provoking, or maybe pieces of evidence um, or sources that we could go to and incorporate to gain more insight. So I hope that um, if that's something that is of interest to you, we'd love to have you there in that space. Um, So please check that out when you have a chance. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast so far um, and you, you feel like passing along a recommendation to somebody else, that would also be greatly appreciated. We really want to try to reach out and kind of expand this conversation because it's exciting to be able to talk about these ideas and creating a space to share experience. And in the next few weeks, we're going to start to be incorporating um, interviews with all kinds of different people, with all kinds of different experience with sport and hopefully that will also be something that will add more perspective and substance and and make this podcast meaningful to different people. So last episode, we had finished with some comments and some thoughts about how are we thinking about, right, the role of physiology in sport how does that relate to the idea of what we feel, right? That what we feel um, is physiological, right, in essence. And that's something we want to explore a little more deeply. Um, and let's reframe quickly, though, what was that original question that we asked, right? You know, why is it so hard to trust how we feel? I think we've advanced this question a little further, And we're now sort of saying it's not just trusting how we feel per se, but really it's more learning to interpret and look for the causality and the predictive potential behind what we feel. For whatever reason here, um, end of December, going into January, it's uncharacteristically warm, 50 degrees outside today and sunny usually would not be the weather that would really be conducive for, you know, riding outside comfortably. But took advantage of the weather. And then after doing the run session this morning, went out for went out for a ride instead of getting on the trainer. And, you know, riding right away, going up just the first pitch, it right just feels off. Right? It's different. Right? Riding outside is different from riding on the trainer. If you've spent time on these things you notice that and it doesn't feel right. And that first instinct in me is like to say, wow, I guess what I'm doing on the trainer isn't working. You know, what can I start trying to find myself immediately starting to try to think, 
what can I do differently on the trainer? What do I need to do? Do I need to do higher intensity? Man, I need to be, you know, upping the ante and doing specific intervals. And then it's like, pause that thinking, right? You know, I'm, re- I'm feeling something and I'm reacting to what I'm feeling in a particular way. And I think that points to how just because we feel things, right, doesn't mean that whatever that leads us to conclude is the right answer. And that's why when we ask that sort of general question of why is it so hard to trust how we feel, that's kind of the essential problem we're looking at is because that's not really the right conclusion. You know, on a experiential level, I'm sh- when you shift context in which you work out and train, like, it's different. You know, you could think about the difference between road riding, cyclocross riding, gravel riding. In running, you can think about the difference between going from cross country to track. You know, horses for courses, as the saying goes, and it seems to be maybe there's some real truth to that um, in human sport because some people do things in cross country that and show a level of proficiency that doesn't necessarily seem to carry over to the track and vice versa. And for some people, it doesn't matter. They're equally good in either context. And even the transition from indoor track to outdoor track can be weird and can leave us with different feelings and sensations. You know, and then, you know, for me with that ride today, part of it is thinking, well, you know, I'm not trying to be in that rhythm of, you know, power variance that, you know, happens when you're riding outside. So you're going to notice that. And then I reflect back on, well, what did it used to be like before, you know, the advents of smart trainers and this kind of stuff just made it so much easier to stay in touch with the bike for those of us who don't live in year-round cycling climates. Although kudos to the hardos out there getting it done on the bike, you know, all winter. I... For me, the trainer is just so much of an easier option, and I guess I just don't feel confident or comfortable with the ice and the traffic and the lack of daylight. But, you know, people get out there and do that. That's awesome. Kudos to you again. When you look at that, though, what you're doing, right, the benefit of being outside is you're staying in touch with that. But I also think there's benefit to being, right, on the trainer that you don't get when you're outside, Right, being on the trainer is more of an aerobic experience, you know, and it's more of a steady state experience. In some senses, riding on the trainer is more like the running um, version of cycling, if you will. And it may be the case that for people who incorporate the trainer into the riding, that rather than look at how can I assimilate and incorporate my general road riding training concepts onto the trainer, it could be there could be more benefit in terms of looking to the principles of you know, middle distance and long distance running approaches and bringing those to the trainer because the sort of constancy of physiological work and the level of fatigue there is different. And I think people trying to execute two to three hour rides on the trainer is grinding people down mentally and people sort of source that as being psychological in nature, which is, I think, really meant to imply that you know, if they had a more disciplined mindset, if they were tougher, you know, they would be able to execute that. Whereas I think the reality is it's probably 
feels like that because it's just more fatiguing. So you can't take the idea that you can ride for three hours and then translate that to the trainer. I mean, you may as a trainer may basically be getting to 60, 70 minutes and you might be feeling I've had enough. But then we weigh that feeling against this other feeling of, but outside I'm riding 25 hours a week and now I'm doing this and like this isn't going to work or whatever, right? So again, right, trusting these feelings when you have multiple feelings in response to multiple variables, right, how are we responding to that? Because there are so many variables that shape training and they're all acting at once, right? We talk, we can only really verbalize, right, give uh, voice to any one variable. I mean, even if we're listing them, right, we can only say one at a time, but they're all acting at once. So it's not a natural or instinctive thing, I would argue, for us to associate sensation, you know, with what might be the one key variable to respond to. You know, by the end of my ride today, you know, I had, you know, resolved, right, convinced myself, you know, evaluated that and reached the conclusion that I don't need to feel like X, Y, and Z going up the hills. And that actually what matters is like going up these hills aerobically because, you know, and let me jump back to something that I think I started saying and then, you know, you know, redirected myself. But before, you know, the easier environment of indoor riding, you were going to use a fluid trainer, right, or a wind trainer. Um, and one quick note about that, actually, um, you know, Eddie Merckx and Greg Lamont both used indoor training trainers as a part of their training you know, according to some evidence, that seems to have been the case. Um, And I think that that's an example of like, it's just extremely focused steady state work. And I think those were people who are recognizing the need for that, right? They were responding to something they felt to adjust to that. And I think, you know, again, when we think about, you know, the indoor trainer and how to incorporate that as a cyclist, I think that's another insight, right? And that's sort of applying the principle of running, that continuous aerobic work is what's beneficial. But, you know, before the ease, increasing ease of accessing the indoor riding experience, um, whereas, right, if you're Greg Lamont or Eddie Merckx, you just have such engagement with the sport and the incentives and the opportunities are so great, it's much easier to, like, want to do that stuff. But if you're a participant in the sport who could be super fit but just isn't going to like step into those opportunities it's obviously going to be harder to to be excited about the kinds of training um that you know don't feel as rewarding to you because they're literally less rewarding because the potential benefit um isn't as great as it would be for people in the position that people like eddie Merckx or greg Greg lamond were in and i think you know naturally you know that's why right it was common for people like to kind of like we used to ride um, you know, as people who also identified as runners, it wasn't like abandoning exercise, but, you know, riding is something that would sort of maybe trickle into being around like in the early, in the spring and then by Labor Day be done, right? And a part of that was like when you're, when we're, you know, racing cross country, you know, as an NCAA sport, it's kind of like, well, you're not doing that during that part of the year, logically, um, and then that just sort of also then became the de- de- the default. And then in the spring, you know, you would get back on the bike and just going up hills and everything was like, holy crap. You know, even though I've been running the whole time, 
you can just feel that there's other le- just lack of familiar with the activity. And so by comparison to that, right, you know, comparing that feeling to this other feeling that I'm having today, that's where you can start to maybe use those feelings to reach a better conclusion because it's like, well, I'm out here, I'm not feeling exactly how I want to feel, right? I But I also know that this is totally different than how it felt to pick up riding again after having just been running for six or eight months. And yes, you know, the legs aren't feeling the climbing the way I want them to, but what are the other things, right? I also know that I ran already, like, and I only, I finished the run probably an hour and a half before getting on the bike because I want to get out there while it's still light out. I know that I become recovering from, you know, the flu, which, you know, is had an impact on my energy level and my ability to sort of you know, feel equilibrium with my exercise. I know that I lifted two days ago, like all of these factors, right? And so it is not just like when we talk about reacting to what we feel, I think it's not about just picking this one thing and then just being like, oh, this is what I feel. This is what I'm thinking in reaction to that. Let me apply that. It has to be a more, a bigger process, Right. And even for me, who can who can come on here and can articulate all of these different thoughts and imagine these different possibilities, I'm still having to walk myself through and and evaluate. Now, that's an ongoing process. And that's a really essential skill, right, that we want to try to understand. And I think there are some people who, with their experience with sport, endurance sport, they can kind of make their first educated guess when they're experiencing something. And there's going to be some probability that for some people, their guess is going to work. And like that can become, it's pretty remarkable, that can become the breakthrough that can basically totally drive or shape their experience, right? But how many times is that happening versus how many times are people applying you know, a reaction to what they feel and then implementing that and then nothing works. And I think it has to be the case that, and this might this is going to be obvious in a second when we think about the evidence for this, it has to be the case that the vast majority of people aren't able to deductively reason or sort of hit on that insight, right? And we say educated guess because I think people who are who are figuring this stuff out in this way, you know, it's like the example of people who are successful with things, but they don't know why. And when they, if they try to go and, and coach people, they can't convey or communicate that, but they'll just continue along with their own experience and it's working, right? You know, and that's an interesting sort of thought construct where it's like they've reached this particular conclusion or this point of view for themselves and it works and it fits, but it's almost like they understand it in a way that might not actually be the correct way, but just internally in their space and their relationship with sport and their, and their sense of self as an athlete, it only works in that space. And if they try to bring that outside of that space, it's just not translating across to other people. And the reason why I think it's overwhelming the majority of people who can't do this is because, like, look at the prevalence of 
you know, publications of different kinds that try to give the method of training. And, you know, that ties into our one of our targets in this um, Learn to Fly episode is what is the role and the consequence of physiological training models? You know, because there's a space in which physiology is used to try to understand how the body is functioning and then, you know, exercise physiology, how does the body respond to this stuff? But then we also have this space where physiology and exercise physiology are being used to try to determine or present the way training should be done. The first book that I got on uh, running was for Christmas um, at some point in high school. I don't uh, remember when, but it might have been my even my um, freshman year. A book called Distance Running, like that was it. The picture was some guy, I don't know if it was the author, but in like shorts and a singlet running, it looked like some tropical beach in the water and there were some sort of big stone monoliths, you know, in the ocean just offshore. Um, Sort of blue border on the cover. Um, And the author, Robert M. Leiden, who isn't a name that um, when I Googled, there's a LinkedIn um, for Leiden, but I didn't, it's not like there's a bunch of stuff or a wealth of stuff. Um, but, and he seems to be like, have been involved in other things, but he's also been involved in running. I would hypothesize, right? Maybe he was a runner himself, maybe still is, I don't know. Uh, but this was published in 2003 and, uh, it's a pretty substantial book. And, you know, basically, you know, looking back at it now, I still have the book, um, it's basically probably college graduate textbook level type stuff is how it I would sort of describe it best, right? And when you go to find books about running that explain the sport, you know, right, this is what you find, you know, and this is 2003. Um, and this is, I think, around the time, I didn't know this at the time, but I think coming out of the 90s and into the early aughts, I think that's what was happening is we're starting to see the publication and this sort of use of physiology as this driving force to explain um, training. And it's almost become like um, this like ritual, right? If you want to write a book about training, you first have to go off and and lay down and repeat the basic physiology, which is sort of like why this is already written everywhere, but again, it, it just seems like it's necessary as if, let me say these things. And, you know, again, you wonder like how much of the audience can engage with that, but does throwing it in there is the belief that that's what's going to validate it. But if people don't really understand, if they're not up to speed on their biochem or their exercise physiology at a college or graduate level, then, you know, is that really going to have meaning for that. And it's kind of funny, I think, because in hindsight, I I don't think that my dad gave me this book really thinking about or looking much at it. I think he just, oh, here's a book, Distance Running. No, here, Tristan, we'll give this to Tristan. You know, I don't think that it was like a complicated, um, you know, reflection of, of any kind of particular concept about training that he had. But I thought this was 
you know, awesome. And if anything, the complexity, and I think, you know, for me, the complexity of books was something that kind of would engage me, you know, a lot when I was younger. And I, to be fair, I suppose it still does. The difference is now I think I'm a little better equipped to actually understand these things. But at the time, you know, I wouldn't understand most of the stuff in these in some of these books, but I didn't care. I would look at them and I would try to read them and try to read them and, you know, like, give to me your secrets kind of thing, you know, the point where it's almost, you know, especially in this case, um, the point of it's almost like, you know, the genie, right, trying to conjure up the genie to grant your wishes. And for me, this was my first real sense of, okay, there's a method of training, right? You're not just going out and going for runs. Like there's something more complicated and exciting and complex and fascinating to this. And that's going to unlock the awesome level performances that captured my imagination. I think capture the imagination of so many people who get into this stuff, especially when you're at an age where you can, you know, still believe or delude yourself, (laughs) depending on how you want to think about that, into painting that expectation of, you know, you being a unique achiever and the sense of this is how I'm going to get my wings, right? This is what's going to get me off the ground and I am going to be flying, right? Once I can, you know, extract these secrets. And like I said, the book is totally physiologically driven. And and some of the conclusions laid out as basically definitive, and I look back and some of this stuff I underlined, like, you know, speed flows from strength. I underlined that. I don't know why, because I don't know what meaning I would make of that. But I, you know, at that time, speed was like this thing that I'm hearing in, in the spaces, the social spaces and the cultural space of exercise that I was in, um, you know, from like the people that at the other athletes, my teammates from coaches, you know, so this was like a thing, right, to figure out speed is from strength, right? And there was a lot of comparison um, from people to people in terms of, you know, like, oh, well, who has more speed? Well, they have so much speed. They have so much speed. And it was almost like being considered to have speed was like um, more important than actually like being good. And I think quite frankly, there was a sense of if people didn't have speed and they were winning, it's like they were like graceless, you know, Neanderthals blundering around and sort of detracting from the, you know, elegance or the nat- what should be the natural pure order of the sport. Um, but other things in the book, you know, these written in stone assertions like really don't seem to hold up. Right. It's hard to sort of like, you know, figure out speed flows from strength. That's sort of like an ambiguous thing. It doesn't, it's really not that helpful. You know, you can have tremendous strength and have no speed, and you can have tremendous strength and have speed, and you can have tre- speed and exhibit, and, you know, exhibit no strength. Right. So it's sort of like amorphous. But, you know, another example is, um, you know, a quote where, you know, Achilles injuries have become more frequent to the height of the heel of running shoes. I'm pretty sure this is not true. You know, the height of running shoes has really increased. Um, And so, right, you look back at this and you realize things that are said with such confidence and permanence, 
you know, of perspective just don't always hold up. And that's why questioning is such a big thing that we're trying to do here in this space. And again, why, why I won't um, invite people to make the, the Black Cats Run Instagram into a space too, because, you know, I, I think other people's, hearing other people's opinions is always, you know, really exciting, right? To see what kinds of ideas do other people have, because like that's the premise of the podcast, right? Is that how we talk about the sport, that's what is driving, right, our ideas. And so when we have more voices, we have more ideas. Um, and it was also, though, this book was also my first exposure to the idea that sport or athletics is something that could be represented in graphs, right? Representing athletics in a graph was a new concept to me. And I, I will say I'm actually a big fan of graphs, and I feel it's important to always be clear about this. This podcast is not meant to be anti-science or you know, dismissive of the value of quantitative reasoning. It's more so taking these things and driving them to try to get them to like a level of effectiveness, right, that is more precise and more representative, right? We use these as tools to explore the things that we're trying to understand. We're not we don't want to fall in the trap of using these to limit our understandings, which can happen. You know, it's it's more so to say, or say it a different way, like just because you can make a graph doesn't automatically mean you're right or that you're onto something of value. You know, you can look for relationships between things and represent them graphically, uh, but doesn't necessarily mean that we're making progress towards what we want to understand, right? And I think, you know, an example of this is in the very beginning of this book, um, there's this graph showing the Goldilocks and the Three Bears model. And we have some listeners in Brussels, Belgium, shout out to you folks. Um, so I don't know how if the Goldilocks and the Three Bears story is something that's in Brussels, but really quickly, uh, Goldilocks is a girl who goes into the house of, you know, Mama Bear, Papa Bear, and Baby Bear, and, you know, tries their beds and tries their porridges. And one is too small, too big, and just right. You know, one porridge is too warm, one is too cold, one is just right. And that Goldilocks condition thing has become sort of a metaphor, at least in uh, English-speaking cultures, for, you know, things being optimal and ideal. So this model, right, this Goldilocks model, and that's how I remember thinking about it at the time, is showing, you know, the three bears of you know, overtraining, undertraining, and supercompensation. Supercompensation being this, you know, awesome looking graph where you apply a stress, you have the short term dip, and then you come up and then the graph shows you being better than you were before. You know, I'm looking at that, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, a lot of the stuff in this book is going over my head, but this made sense to me, and that had a lasting uh, impression. And I think that, you know, the supercompensation graph is probably a pretty useful way to think about what happens. I'm not building up to dismissing that. But it's also true that that model um, of apply stress that is significant enough to lead to depreciated capacity to perform, causing a rebound to up to and then to a new level, 
I don't think that that's necessarily exactly what it looks like for everybody because it's a study of, and this is my argument in general, and I'm referring back to something, but to build it out a little more, these physiological models are being presented to us as the way in which we should train, sort of the answer to our confusion and our uncertainty. But the models are based on studies that have oftentimes been done to try to find the physiology behind the practices done by the high performers. But the high performers are the people who made it through the barrier of the path of discipline training, which has so often, you know, been had this sort of stranglehold on shaping the systems and, you know, different endurance sports and team sports. And that for some people, if you apply loads, and I, I know this from experience, you know, I think for me personally, this has been true, that if I apply loads of training stress that depreciate me, um, I don't then rebound back up. And I don't feel that, oh, and two days later, I'm feeling stronger, right? So this model is suggesting a relationship, which it sort of looks like is true. But when you go to like, what are you feeling or experiencing as an athlete? I think a lot of athletes, most athletes, maybe, I don't know, is it possible all athletes aren't feeling that? You know, when I do have done, I have, have no recollection of doing a single training session of, you know, specific intensity and then coming back at some point and feeling, wow, now I am, I am feeling stronger than I was the last specific session I did. So models like that, that's also language, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. Graph is a kind of a picture we can say, you know, and it doesn't teach us, right? It's not giving us what we need, you know, and and reading this book at the end of the day didn't unlock anything in, in me. It had some cool quotes and, you know, it gave me a lot of ideas and language and kind of definitely started my galvanized a lot of interest for me in trying to understand how do people try to understand and make sense of sport. But I was no more capable of performing as an athlete. And it didn't change my experience in training at all. I couldn't feel myself super compensating. And as a coach, I don't feel that I could see the athletes super compensating. And I might, you know, at times explain this sort of conceptually, this is kind of like, The idea is you're going to train, sometimes you're going to be tired, but then you're going to have points where you're going to be stronger than you were before. But to really then use that as a model of training, I think is really what people do is they say, I'm going to apply a load and now I'm just going to like go as easy as I can and just wait in a sense, you know, sort of go into a holding pattern, you know, or engage the systems of recovery and then oh, now I'm super compensated. Now I can bring the tempo down in the workout. Now I can bring the wattage up um, in the repetitions or the intervals on the ride. And I think what we need to understand is how we as people in athletics um, in other contexts of performance can create like what is being observed, right? And I think physiology is responding to uh, what's being observed, Right, and it's explaining those observed 
outcomes. Um, and it's, so the, it's not really helpful for the athlete, you know, trying to, you know, learn how to like get off the ground to, you know, say, well, this is what it will look like if you get to that point. That's all well and good and that's worth studying, but that's not building that link, right, from where somebody is to, you know, getting up to speed and, and being able to, like, move in that direction. Um, you know, and, and this is why feeling good, you know, we're saying is central to athletics, you know, because there's limitations, very clear limitations, I think. You know, and this was just one example, and, and we're going to go into more and, and try to, you know, prove this stuff to a greater extent and then offer, you know, kind of all an alternative alternatives, right, where the world is not a dichotomy, right? There's multiple different things going on, you know, and a lot of people, I think, maybe at this point in culture, basically everybody kind of knows it's important to acknowledge I'm having fun. You know, we described how some like kind of mass participation, like in gravel cycling culture, it seems to be like, you know, I mean, there's a piece of Orwellian, you know, hammering, um, right there of just like, no, this is fun. Like we're having fun and, you know, we're not here to take it seriously. And if you're taking it seriously, you can't be having fun. Right. And this sort of, well, but you're liberated as long as you do exactly what we tell you to do kind of thing. This is very kind of strange space to try to navigate. But, you know, we're not talking on the level of CYA, you know, statements, you know, CYA cover your ass statements to just sort of show you have empathy be like, you know, oh, yes, you know, this is supposed to be fun and, you know, whatever. And then, you know, people who just do whatever the frig you want anyway, right? You know, and, and that, when people do that, you know, when we give that sort of superficial, like, okay, we need to throw this in here. I think that's, that's maybe that's even more truly Orwellian, right? Where, you know, misery is fun and boredom is entertainment, right? And there's another silencing effect right? Where like, you can't say, well, you know, I don't feel the way I'm supposed to, because we've now established that no, we're here to have fun here on this team, here in this race, here in this community of athletes, you know, we have fun, right? So if that's the fixed definition, and you're not experiencing that, well, then the problem is you. And I think that's what physiology leaves us with a lot of times, is like, when we're not improving, you know, as we're trying to figure out or implement these systems, it tells us that we're the problem. And that's that, I think that's sort of Orwellian block, you know, and I think that these physiological systems have created, and maybe this is a little dramatic, but I think there's some truth to this, that the prevalence and the rise of these physiological systems have created this kind of like Orwellian uh, dystopia, where asking questions isn't really encouraged, you know, we're here to be indoctrinated into these essential truths um, and, and, you know, the accepting, you know, of the, the essential mysteries of, of this stuff. And, and it's sort of like, it implies that like it's been figured out. Um, and I think it is repressive of creativity and, you know, orienting towards what do I feel is working, right? And the idea that things that are making me feel good feel stronger, those are what's effective, 
But it's like, nope, you need to follow the physiological model. And if you feel like crap, it doesn't matter because this is what you're supposed to do. And then you see how that feeds into the path of discipline, right? Because you can also go to path of discipline, another silencing method um, on the experience of being an athlete and be like, well, you know, it's supposed to be hard. You know, and well, you know, that's what it's like. You know, when it's hard, you know, cowardice is the result of fatigue. And, you know, you have to overcome that and you have to displace how you feel. Um, but we're saying not this sort, we're not trying to feed into that when we talk about feeling good, you know, and, and that's why we're trying to, I'm saying feeling good versus having fun. Although I do think that one of the outcomes is of feeling good is that it is fun, but I think genuinely fun in an exciting way that like when we're motivated and passionate about something, you know, versus like being at a birthday party or going out to a bar, you know, kind of fun, which I think is sort of more fleeting and sort of like empty. And what we're trying to say then is that feeling good, that this is an element of training. And it's also an element of the social, cultural, and emotional experience that needs to be targeted. And target, we mean target in the same pace as, say, Roger Bannister targeted four-minute pace, or in the same way um, in which cyclists, you know, target trying to do uh, training at specific wattages and trying to target raising their functional threshold power. You know, and, and for Bannister, when he was training for that four-minute mile in, oh God, I want to say 1956, but the mid-1950s, you know, the key thing and the famous thing was the, you know, I think it was eight by quarter mile and working down, you know, from the winter up to that performance, you know, working those down, you know, closer and closer to 60 seconds and sub 60 second quarters. But he also would go out and, and do these long hikes um, in the hills. And those hikes probably helped his aerobic capacity, right? So there's that other thing there that's contributing to feeling good on a physiological level, right? Did those workouts alone, right? Was that that super compensation model advancing us towards that four-minute mile? And those hikes probably also helped him feel good too, like in general, right? And by feeling good in general, I think that actually, if you read the book, The Perfect Mile, I, I want to say that's one of the things that's discussed in there is that like those hikes maybe helped him come back and feel refreshed to do more work on the track, right? And what does that say about the, because most people wouldn't say, oh, to recover from your intervals, go out and, you know, on this hiking expedition over the weekend. But would he, you know, that wouldn't fit into the model of supercompensation, you know, and is that, you know, and then, you know, in that famous race at the Empire Games, you know, now the Commonwealth called the Commonwealth Games, but the Empire Games with, you know, John Landy, you know, you know, because he outkicks John Landy, you know, his method and his model, right, that supercompensation, that feeds into that supercompensation legend, you know, and it's amazing, like, when we say that the physiological stuff that's emphasized, like, well, because Bannister broke four minutes first, and then he beat John Landy in the showdown between the first two people to run under four minutes in the mile, the physiology, right, we tend to target 
that absolute apex, right, what we perceive to be the apex. John Landy, you know, who spent some of his time as an athlete with Saruti, um, you know, he stepped on a light bulb and cut his foot before that race. So it's possible that Landy might have been the stronger um, athlete and that Landy could have, you know, if not for that, maybe he would have won it. How could have something like that, you know, led to different physiological models? We mentioned this before, but Percy Cerruti and, you know, an example of somebody who has philosophy and ideas about sport and, you know, if you get a chance, if you're somebody who likes to really try to dive into this stuff on your own, uh, there's a book um, about that and and um, this, uh, the On Running podcast with Steve Magnus and um, Marcus. They had a great episode where they um, talked about Percy Cerruti and talked in particular about, you know, probably Percy Cerruti's, you know, best book and that, it, you know, and how it, it has things that aren't just about do this workout and do this workout and do this workout. And I think that kind of conceptual philosophical of how should it feel, what should the space be like, you know, all of these kinds of things, you know, would that have shifted to a greater point of emphasis if it hadn't um, been for that? And I think, you know, that's a great podcast to go find and look at if you don't have the time um, or the access to Saruti's book, or you could do both. So I think that would probably be probably even more rewarding. But I think the Bannister legend gives in to that narrative of, you know, you're mastering the body, you are cultivating that physiology, right? It definitely fits in with the supercompensation narrative. Although, again, we're not saying that supercompensation isn't physiologically accurate, but when we talk about it, it takes on an additional dimension, right? A dimension of expectation, a dimension of language. Language can serve to fix expectations in particular ways. But if we think about historically ideas of the mind and consciousness, ideas of the soul and life as being a vital spark or a distinct or separate thing from the body have a long and you know multicultural history. You can see this concept occurring in different spaces. And these ideologies throughout time have made it so much easier for us to divorce the mind from the body and see these as totally separate. And when you have these uh, historical coincidences of sport, like, you know, Bannister overcoming kind of this barrier um, in the way that he did, right? And so his story becomes important, right? Not John Landy's story. In the same way that we look at the people who perform the best, um, and you'll have high school athletes who will do basically no particular kind of training and they might have like, you know, drug problems. Uh, I'm not talking about PEDs, like recreational drugs, like things that, you know, for most of us, like if we put those into place, like we would be a shell of our athletic ability, but they'll go out and they'll win state championships. Um, And I'm not saying this to sort of like pull back the curtains on the, you know, secret history of high school athletics. But, you know, I think people who have been involved in these spaces um, are familiar with these kinds of things, that people will go out and do this stuff um, despite 
right, what they're doing. But those will be the people that we want to understand and use as our models or, or representative versus the people who maybe made the most dramatic transformation. But, you know, like John Landy, they just didn't get to that point at which they sort of, yep, this is worth studying. And instead they just get thrown into the sort of like cast-offs pile, um, at least from a like understanding the sport and understanding training and the athletic experience perspective. And that kind of stuff, I think, has pushed that idea of the mind being something that's divorced and separate from the body, you know, there. Um, I mean, it's been very easy because that plays off of these prevailing, you know, ideas and culture, right? You know, the body being seen as a vessel, you know, a earthen or earthly vessel is not a new thing. Um, that's not an idea created by sport. I think it's an idea that is brought and used to understand sport because that was a concept that already existed. However, consciousness isn't that. That's not the way the mind is. It's not separate from the body. And with respect to our desire to sort of insulate ourselves from fears of death, fears of meaningless, um, our desire to feel like there's some sort of eternity and we will transcend and though our body breaks down as we live in it, um, you know, and again, that idea that we live in it versus like we are it, you know, you know, in, in this fear, right? We simply poof, disappear and that's, you know, that's just malarkey, right? We don't exist beyond that, right? And I think that uh, suggestion that that's possible is absurd, you know, like when people are like, oh, well, maybe we live in a simulation, you know, and it's like, well, just another grasping at straws. I mean, it's one of the conundrums of existence, um, you know, but the best understanding is that the mind is just a result. And we say just as if it's not incredibly complicated, but it's a result of tangible, physiological, biological, chemical, chemical phenomena. And this makes a ton of sense. If you go all the way back to the Big Bang and reason forward, you know, the whole freaking universe is an ongoing reaction. Our being and existence and the development of consciousness is just a part of that process. You know, recognizing that everything begins at that point of the Big Bang, I mean, who would have thought, right? But that can empower us all the way up here to making this argument for shifting our understanding of the mind and its relationship to athletics, right? So if you're going to argue that um, physiology is the holy grail and trying to find um, the most optimal training intensity, right, and which physiological model has hit that, right, point, right, and that they've really nailed the nailed that, um, I can only agree to a certain extent. You know, I I don't think that there's a singular intensity, but I do think that physiology is incredibly important to understanding how these things work. And I do think that physio physiology has added to our understanding, right? I do think we need that. But the limit that I see is that most physiologies follow the kind of mind-body divide. And we've tried to outline and make the argument, you know, why historically, both in a short and long-term context, that's the case. And that's been, you know, bred into athletic culture from the path of discipline perspective, 
And I think this is why when you apply physiological models, it sucks. It Very few people are able to use, like for all of that, think about this. This is like an irony, right? You know, or or oxymoron or like a paradox or something that, you know, physiological models are supposed to like work and be like the, you know, panacea for people's like athletic aspirations. And overwhelmingly, like people don't, you know, make this kind of brilliant progressions and, and breakthroughs. I mean, I think, yes, when you're taking people who have an alternative that is basically doing kind of like a version of kind of nothing, you know, or maybe they're going and they're running a mile around the track as hard as they can every day. Yes, if you give them these models, they're going to create something that just comparatively is so much better. So we're like, wow, this really changed my running. But to navigate those models, you have to have the path of discipline experience. I think that supports the our, our argument here, which is that, you know, the path of discipline selects things that will be studied by physiology because then the systems of physiology are putting us into experiences where the training is hard and unpleasant, you know, because their path of discipline. And I think we're not acknowledging the mind's role. We're not acknowledging, right, the need to feel good, you know, because feeling good and then that's, and the self-referencing that is possible because of that, you know, this is physiologically rooted and these reactions are tied to something and some things tangible, you know, and actionable and both the something that we're experiencing, right? And then the reaction that we're feeling as a result of that something are also tangible. We just don't know that in a sense or we don't accept that or discuss it in that sense because we can't measure it scientifically yet. But like we can prove it statistically. Like we can look at the kind of like quantify this and we can basically see like it's got to be there. And just because we're having a hard time measuring it doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't try to account for it. And so these models aren't accounting for it. And that's why when we try to like engage with them, they feel awful, right? And that's why doing, you know, two times 20 minutes is insane. Um, and I think uh, like Dylan Johnson on his YouTube, you know, made some interesting points about say, like the trainer road model, right? Which is also sort of a really physiologically rooted model and how it's just like overwhelmingly intensive, right? And like the mind, like as a consciousness, we can't handle it. And the idea that the athlete is... The true athlete, the true great performer is somebody who can, I think, is, is just ridiculous. And that goes back to our what's our argument for that? Our argument for that is like the adrenal response. If you have a high adrenal response to these training demands, then you're more likely going to be somebody who can engage with that. You know, and I think, you know, most training breakthroughs or effective ideas or successes have been achieved you know, without going through the path of physiological validation, um, you know, because physiology is still struggling to fully explain a lot of the training that's effective. And another qualifier is, and I think this does matter, unfortunately, um, is that a lot of the people at the top level of the sport who are using these models, you know, and then are sort of providing the evidence to validate them are taking performance enhancing drugs, 
which, you know, like Tyra Hamilton talked about how it's just like you don't get tired anymore. So if you're already adrenal in response to these the sort of like discipline, um, performative discipline acts of training, and then you're on PEDs, which are just doubling down for you because now you're highly adrenal and you're not having an issue recovering, right? It's like now you're just like, you're. it's like those PEDs like make super compensation happen, right? And this isn't, you know, so like you start to see the problem here that, you know, we're validating these models and then pushing them on people when it's just like the results are skewed, you know, again and again and again before like the studies are even done, you know, and if we were looking at the sort of experience, that's why I want to interview lots of different people and bring them on here, because I think those are the experiences that need to be represented. And that's what physiologically I think needs to be explored to make a better understanding. And to sort of wrap here, I want to briefly talk about, and then we'll pick up with this as we start to transition into talking more about some of the specific physiological models. If you haven't read this or come across this, um, Niels Vanderpool's um, write-up, uh, How to Skate a 10K, is awesome. There's so much in there that can be read, I think, as sort of incorporating this concept of feeling good. you know. And he's structured um, around his training in an incredible way, but without sounding like this path, of discipline, right? He talks about the limit and staying under the limit, but trying to make sure you test and know what that is. He talks about, you know, strategies to feel good, not like hedonistically, like he's talking about exercising 30 hours a week, Monday through Friday, or maybe doing it in less than that if he has something he wants to do. But then he's talking about how like he, you know, wouldn't, he'd only train five days a week, even though he's doing 30 hours, right? Um, and you could read it as a bunch of compromises, right? Oh, why is he only, you know, doing that? And then he's being lazy, but it's like, give me a break, right? He's logging 30 hours of activity, you know, in a five-day period, you know, how can you look at that, right? And say that, but if people look at that and they're dismissive of that, I think it just shows um, how stupid we can become about this stuff when our perspectives are too conditioned, Right, and it can prevent us from seeing um, what's actually effective. And of course, you can bring, you know, to that same source material different interpretations. Of course, um, some people might want to look at that and say, "Well, how can you get the mind to be capable of that?" As if it requires a different brain uh, versus murky- making the brain we already have healthier. Again, you know, uh, transcendence right? Transcendent achievements as a struggle um, with controlling a basic kind of Hobbesian or Old Testament trainer, uh, Testament nature, excuse me, um, Old Testament training. There's sort of mixing and matching in my head, right? Uh, That's nothing new. So when we take these things, right, I think we're looking at, I think, a pretty strong argument for that, the idea that physiology is overlooking the importance of how we feel and, you know, overemphasizing these other things. And, and the bias, again, we've referenced this before, is coming from the bias of, you know, among these other things, also what can we actually measure? So when you're doing your training and you're experiencing this stuff and it's not feeling right, 
you know, interrogate that feeling. What can that really mean? And that's going to be where we're going to continue to go, right? Is trying to say, well, what's the implication of this? How can we take these ideas of expanding the utilization of the mind? Um, and we're going to try to look at, uh, for example, Daniel's running formula, polarized training, threshold training, um, in cycling and training models in general and kind of say, well, what is kind of the universal? And we're going to use um, data from myself and, and maybe some other people to try to specifically, you know, break that down and translate that. So that's something that I'm really excited to get into um, as we go forward, because I think that's going to really start to make some other things jump out and be really clear. So anyway, thanks for making time to listen. Appreciate it. I hope this is continuing to be thought-provoking. I hope it's expanding um, your perspective. And, you know, again, we'd love to have everybody join, follow on the Instagram, um, make that a space for dialogue, exchange ideas. You know, what questions do we have? What other points of view do we want to see represented? What things are standing out to us? All right. Thanks for checking in on the Black Cat's Run podcast, and we'll catch you next time.